You are listening to The Conversation on HPR One. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hawaii Public Radio has learned that the state's Hazardous Emergency Evaluation and Response Team responded this weekend to a fuel leak at Pearl Harbor. It tells HPR that it was underneath an area known as Kilo Pier. The Navy said this morning it had also alerted the Coast Guard. It has identified the fuel as marine diesel fuel, and initial reports indicate that the release is about 100 gallons. In a statement, Captain Trent Kappel of the Navy Supply Systems Command Fleet Logistics Center said, the quick reaction of watchstanders and the existing double-boomed area allowed us to contain and stop the release. We learned of the weekend release as we were investigating reports of a larger leak dating back to March of 2020. The Navy confirmed to us that in that case, 7,700 gallons of product has been collected from soil and the water. It was first flagged in March 2020 as an oil sheen on the water, which then disappeared. It wasn't until three months later in June that the break was discovered at Hotel Pier, which is just next to the Arizona Visitor Center. The Sierra Club of Hawaii was surprised to learn of these latest leaks. It just wound up a contested case hearing with the Navy over a permit to operate the underground uh, storage fuel tank at Red Hill. And there had been no mention of the 2020 leak, which was just stopped in February of this year. We talked to Marty Townsend, executive director of Sierra Club, about the news of these two leaks just coming to light this week. I am shocked and outraged, but I am not surprised. I mean, we knew that this system leaks, like it has always leaked. And despite all the promises and changes in procedures and money spent, uh, the Navy can't prevent it from leaking. This system was not designed to last this long and was not designed to be improved and to endure for 100 years. And we should have retired this facility you know, 50, 60 years ago, uh, you know, after the its immediate need was met, right? The Second World War ended and the facility should have been retired. Um, and it's, just, it's outrageous that the Navy thinks that its convenient access to oil or fuel is uh, more important than um, its obligation to keep our environment clean. They have no right to contaminate our water and they shouldn't be pursuing this facility anymore. Now, you folks are just coming off the contested case hearing, and the staff basically said that they don't believe that the military approved its case. It, it sounds like there may be conditions attached to this permit if they're allowed to operate. But, you know, this fuel that has been involved in this leak at Pearl Harbor, I mean, that it's from Red Hill. Yes. At this point, the only reasonable course of action is for uh, the regulators to only authorize the Red Hill facility to the extent that it is being wound down and undone. Many of us recognize that we can't just, you know, flip a switch and turn it off tomorrow. So, you know, we have all along tried to be reasonable, recognizing, you know, that there are competing interests here. And we just, all we want to see is that the public's interest, the environment's interest are prioritized and the Navy is made to modify its behavior. They can find a better way to store their fuel, is the bottom line. And I think, you know, the fact that they're operating right now without a permit is really unacceptable. And it is better to issue them a short-term permit that regulates them um, to the fullest extent possible and provides very specific directions for how to uh, wind down this facility appropriately. And like, we can't have them just hastily abandon it 
and you know not all the fuel will be um, relocated, and then we still have leaks, and also the Navy is not you know involved, right? Because this is their facility; they need to take responsibility for it. Um, it will take time for them to clean up this mess, and so that's really all decisions that we make going forward should be. Um, made with that in mind that this facility is shutting down and we're taking all appropriate steps, immediate steps to make that happen. Now, I think in the case of the recent fuel spill, the one from Friday night at uh, Kilo Wharf uh, and then the one at Hotel Pier, they're comparatively, I guess, small compared to what happened over at uh, Red Hill, you know, many years ago. Right now, the initial estimates are 100 gallons. Uh, released on Friday. Uh, the one from 2020, though, has been apparently ongoing for a while, and it's uh, 7,700 gallons, uh, the latest estimate. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, I think it's important to uh, not get too hung up on the amount of gallonage, you know, amount of fuel that leaks. What we're experiencing right now is slow chronic leaking, which is exactly what the risk assessment for this facility identified, is that it's just going to constantly be oozing fuel and the fact that it is so close to the drinking water supply the aquifer that uh, provides our drinking water that kind of slow chronic leak is extremely dangerous and I mean I think we have you know a shifting baseline of expectation where you know we get more slow we get comfortable slowly over time with like oh just a little bit of fuel leaks here a little bit of fuel leaks there um, and it's important that we hold the line and recognize that no amount of fuel should be released into the environment. Right? The way the state law is written, it says that fuel, uh, you know, whatever product is being stored in an underground storage tank shall not reach the environment. And we are now having it chronically reach the environment. It's not like a one-off situation. The standard operating procedure for this facility is that it leaks. It's completely unacceptable. We, we cannot allow that to be. Um, this is a man-made facility, and they, this is not a natural condition that we are having to, like, grapple with. We created this problem, and we need to deal with it. We, human beings, and you know, the Navy is confronted with a, a Frankenstein monster situation. They built this thing uh, that they really are proud of, um, but they can't control it, and now it's jeopardizing the health and safety of the community and our environment. And it's time for someone to be adult in the room and tell them that they need to shut this down. This cannot continue as it has been. And it's, you know, the fact that it's a small amount of gallons here and a small number of gallons there um, should not detract from the fact that in cumulatively all together, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of gallons that have leaked from this facility, majority of which cannot be cleaned up when it, leaks uh, onto land, they do not have the capability of cleaning it up. The stuff that leaks out into the ocean, they can clean up some of it, but, you know, we've all seen oil spills, sadly, and it's it's a catastrophic impact on the environment, uh, and we should not allow this to continue to happen. Were you surprised that this didn't come to light publicly? I mean, they did, you know, report it to the proper authorities, the Coast Guard and the Health Department, uh, when it happened, but uh, I think it, it wasn't disseminated I mean, it's, widely. It's extremely disappointing that they continue to um, be less than transparent with the public about what's going on. Right, the Navy's 
perspective and position has been trust us, trust us. We have everything under control. And then uh, they don't tell us uh, when things are happening. And so it just makes it impossible for us to actually be able to trust whatever it is they're telling us. When we found out about the leaks that we did find out about, like the one in May, because someone posted it to, to Reddit and people started to you know, investigate more and more. And we're only finding out about these other leaks because you, know, you are investigating. It's not like the Navy's being forthcoming and saying, hey, public, you should know. We had yet another leak. And it's really unfortunate that we can't trust our own Navy to be straight up with us about what's going on at their facility. And it just speaks to another reason why we need to retire this facility. It cannot function to meet our expectations as a society, and so we need to shut it down. Do you think the health department should have uh, put a release out about this response? I think it would have helped, yes. But, I mean, ultimately this is the Navy's responsibility. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Department of Health, I think, is doing a lot with the few resources that they have. And we appreciate the effort they are putting into it. Same with the Board of Water Supply. I mean, neither of these agencies signed up for this. This was not, you know, their uh, problem that they made, right? They are dealing with a situation that the U.S. Navy created and is refusing Mm -hmm. to take responsibility for and refusing to act responsibly about, you know, everyone can see that this facility is not safe. And it's only the Navy who is refusing to accept that truth. While the Department of Health could have done more, let's not lose sight of the fact that this is the Navy's responsibility and it's the Navy that's failing us. That was a take from Marty Townsend, executive director of the Sierra Club of Hawaii, talking about two fuel leaks at Pearl Harbor, one that happened Friday night, which involves about 100 gallons of marine diesel, and one that began in March of last year and was just stopped in February of this year. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're shining a light on what makes one of the products here in Hawaii so well-known and unique. The pineapple has been linked to the Aloha State for as long as anyone can remember. Think of all the local businesses that incorporate pineapples in their logo and ask the average person, what's on a Hawaiian pizza? Well, today the bulk of the world's pineapple supply is produced outside the U.S., but there are still a few farms making a go of it in our islands. One crop consists of a unique variety cultivated on the slopes of Haleakala on Maui for over 100 years. Known for its extra sweet and less acidic qualities, it's now marketed to the world as Maui Gold. It's also special because it contains a higher concentration of an important nutritional substance known to boost immune systems and provide protection against certain diseases. You can probably easily name your favorite way to eat the fruit, but can you tell us what nutrient is reportedly three times higher uh, in the Maui Gold pineapple than the average pineapple? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. 
The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareedhawaii.com. Civil Beat has a story today about the death rate in our prisons and jails. Politics editor Chad Blair joins us this morning for our reality check. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So the story is something that uh, Kevin Dayton wrote up. Right. Kevin's been covering uh, prisons and jails for us, and I'm filling in for him because he's he's earned some <laughs> some time off and well-deserved, I might add. But uh, Kevin's story today focuses on a troubling aspect about our prisons and jails, how Hawaii, the state, is, is on track to actually have the most uh, inmate deaths in, in almost 10 years. You have to go back to 2012, 2013. Both those years, there were 20 inmates that died. I think that includes Arizona facilities. Uh, but already this year, here it is, we're still in July, and there's already been 14 deaths so far this year. That includes six of them uh, due to COVID at Halava. Uh, just last week, there was a 38-year-old who was found unconscious at that facility and, and now has since been declared uh, deceased. Well, I guess, you know, people would think, well, yeah, we're we're in a pandemic and that's mm. one of those high risk areas where everybody's in, you know, closed facilities and you can't do much about it. Right. I mean, there's certainly uh, something to that. Kevin did talk to some national experts because this is a national trend because of the pandemic. Uh, and one of the problems is, is that when a jail or prison is, if you will, on lockdown, uh, that also strains resources to help other inmates that might be sick with other issues. Uh, essentially, your 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 correctional medical system is, is overwhelmed. And of course, that's going to contribute. But you know, Catherine, there's another aspect about this. You remember that a, a federal judge just last week came out with a pretty tough ruling about Department of Public Safety, which runs the jails and prisons, saying they were, and I'm using her words, deliberately indifferent to, to responding and dealing with the COVID threat uh, with our inmates, it included things like putting uh, an inmate who tested positive in housing them with this, uh, a non-infected person, someone who didn't have the virus. He, he cites an example of what's known as the fishbowl. That's at the Hilo jail, 40 to 60 inmates at a time, all crowded in. And as you can imagine, that's just a recipe for problems. Uh, the judge, by the way, uh, ordered DPS to really follow its own pandemic response plan. Uh, if it had stuck with that, I, the, the insinuation is that we would be having these number of deaths. And we did see uh, the court's, uh, you know, order that some of these uh, less, I guess, violent offenders, right, the folks that are just uh, kind of waiting sure. around at OCCC, that they should be let loose. 
Right. There was that as well. Interestingly enough, we did hear from Tony Schwartz, the, the spokeswoman at DPS, and, and she noted they wouldn't speculate you know, on what's going on with the, high, the higher number of deaths. But she did say that, you know, look, this is an aging population, the inmate population. Uh, there are many people that, well, had lifelong drug addictions. There are people that frankly, had a tough life on the street. So when they come into the jails and prisons in Hawaii, you know, they're already, if you will, predisposed to medical problems. By the way, an amazing fact uh, that many of these are physiologically 10 to 15 years older than they are chronologically because of, you know, because of these tough lifestyles. And so you're obviously more vulnerable to diseases like COVID, um, especially in crowded prison and jail conditions. Right. And it is a challenge when you can't mandate that all the guards have to be, the ACOs, you know, the adult correctional officers have to be vaccinated, right? And they they were doing lots of testing and finding out that people were bringing it in. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, there are also reports of of staff not wearing masks. Uh, There are reports of a lack of cleaning supplies. I mean, I could tell you here at Civil Beat, we got no shortage of cleaning supplies and masks and, you know, those plexiglass div- dividers between desks, because that's what you got to do in real time. And another point from Kevin's story, by the way, is, you know, Hawaii could do better when you look at the other Western states, particularly California, Nevada, Arizona, and, and Oregon, that they have a, a better system when they publicly announce what's going on when somebody dies. Hawaii does not automatically report publicly when an inmate dies, and that's a frustration to try and get more information. Is it possible that the COVID deaths, for example, are undercounted? Yeah, no, no, that is a sticking point. Yeah, uh, interesting story, though, by uh, uh, Kevin Dayton. But thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read reporter Kevin Dayton's story at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queen's Healthcare Centers, providing primary care at 11 locations across Hawaii. Learn more by calling 808-691-8200. He's been called a barnstorming piano phenomenon, and he's performing in HPR's Atherton Studio. Coming Saturday, July 31st, it's a live stream performance with pianist Henry Herbert playing Boogie Woogie, Blues, and much more, all on HPR's Bosendorfer Grand Piano. It's a virtual concert, so you can join us from anywhere. Sign up at hbrtickets.org. Sponsored by TS Restaurants. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to strengthening island communities by assisting local food bank networks on Oahu and the neighbor islands. Matson.com. about a week and a half since Oahu moved into a modified Tier 5, which would drop the six-foot distancing requirement provided that patrons 
could show proof of vaccination. That puts a lot of burden on businesses to ask restaurant goers for their uh, vaccination cards, and some owners aren't comfortable with the added responsibility. We talked to the incoming chair of the Hawaii Restaurant Association, Sarah Wynn, who is also a small business owner of a Pearl Highlands restaurant. It has been busy, and as far as with the challenges that we're going through, there there are three three things. It's capacity issues. Although we may be the capacities increased, there's still that that six feet distance, and we're not able to fit in more more people because of the distancing, the six feet distancing. There's staffing shortages, and so. For us, we're, you know, we're down three people. I heard some restaurants out there, they're down 10, 20, 20-something people. So there's definitely challenges there. And then also supply chain. There's delays in getting products shipped to Hawaii. Um, there's increases in um, products such as beef and chicken. So several of those different challenges. And um, although things are open, and I know that there's some um, discussions around vaccination and asking for vaccination um, at our restaurant, we're not quite there. We haven't asked, and um, I know some other restaurants that they are out there, and they they um, have started that. I'm not sure that um, there were, you know, maybe some challenges with that. Um, not many, but as far as with our restaurant, we haven't um, been at that point that, that we're asking. We're actually busy. We had trivia night, and we're, we're taking reservations. We're maxed out, and we we're having to turn people away. So definitely busy out there, um, and just kind of getting, you know, over. Um, as far as with recovering with the pandemic, and, and there's a pent-up demand, but there's limited capacity in the customers that can come. Well, talk about your restaurant, you know, when you talk about the supply chain. So we are a build-your-own pizza restaurant in Pearl City, uh, and so we're at Pearl Highland Center. So it started out several, several months ago, and there's a cheese shortage, there's um, chicken shortage, and right now it's the chicken wing shortage, and so... Um, that does cause challenges for us, and that, that's something, you know, we're a pizza place, so we do definitely need the cheese. And so having to maneuver around that and then the increases in pricing and having to find alternative sources. And so those are the challenges that, that we've been facing. And right now what we're experiencing is so on the other side of our restaurant is a bar. And so our uh, beer distributors, our alcohol distributors, they're having challenges getting beer over here. So we're having to um, 86 certain beers because we can't get it. So those are some of the challenges that we, that, that we have and capacity and, and employee shortage. So that's a common theme across restaurants across um, the state. You know, when I first saw the lines in Waikiki, when things were starting to open, I thought, okay, I expect that just because there were fewer restaurants that were open. And then you started to hear, you know, friends and colleagues saying, oh, gosh, I can't get a, a reservation at this restaurant. And, and then even the local spots, you know, the plate lunch places are, are inundated because a lot of the tourists are looking for places to eat. So it's just impacting just so many establishments across the board. It, it has. And, and it's just not uh, like Waikiki, as you mentioned, it's trickling towards, you know, we're in Pearl City. I live in town and um, my husband the other day, it was on a Monday and, you know, he wanted to go to one of our local restaurants. Typically Mondays aren't busy. And um, when he showed up, it was a two hour wait. So we went down our list of other restaurants to go and they turned, you know, he was, he was turned away. And so definitely feeling the effects of that. I think that um, as far as with, you know, it, with the restaurants, although capacity, you know, um, has increased and, and it's open and, and there's the 25 people that could be able to dine in, 
that six foot distance, that is definitely creating a challenge for us. You know, we operate in you know, as far as with the restaurant industry in a very low margin. And to be able to, you know, right now is the, is the high season. And if we could just be able to have that part lifted, would greatly appreciate the restaurant. And um, we're having, you know, our employees are overworked. Um, and, you know, as far as with CDC guidelines, the classrooms, I mean, they could be three feet apart. And I think that by having um, the three feet apart versus the six, that would definitely help us in being able to, you know, the past year uh, to be able to recover some of the losses that we've had um, in our industry. So the restrictions are uneven. I do feel that it is, and it is causing, just on top of everything, um, the challenges that we're, we're going through. And I think just that little bit of help would would help us in get, getting us a little bit of breathing room, the various bills that are passed with the Bill 40 and a lot of things all at the same time. And so as far as with support from, from you know, the government to be able to help us with some of these um, with, with regards to getting more people into the restaurants. And, you know, as far as with the restaurants, we face the, the strictest guidelines in, in opening up. And so, you know, for me, you know, you know, we are safe um, in our restaurants and, so I, I feel that if we had some of those restrictions lifted, that would greatly help us. It sounds like we've got to still have lots of mixed messages, you know, while the CDC says maybe you don't need a mask on uh, indoors. I don't know. Are, are your workers still donning masks? You know, how, how does that work? We are. So it is required. So all of our employees are required to wear a mask or they're for 10 hours. They're having to wear a mask all day. We have our customers. They are required to wear a mask if they are sitting down and um, actively dining and drinking in, then, then they could take the mask out. And so that, that is still in place. And as far as being able to have a little help, I feel that if we're able to open it up a bit, have the, the six feet uh, distance removed and that we could be able to, to operate and, and, and have more folks. And I think that would give us a little bit of breathing room. And, and as far as with what we're doing and the challenges that we're facing, you know, there's the capacity. If that's one thing that we could be able to get help on that, you know, we would greatly appreciate that. There's a staffing issue. Um, and then also supply chain, which, which you know, that, that's mm-hmm. not one of those things that, that we'll have to, to deal with. But I think as far as with capacity-wise, that would definitely help us at the restaurant. And what about enforcement, though? I mean, that, that's probably just even more frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> that is, you know, as far as with um, our restaurant and uh, we have posts that, that's around the restaurant in, on busy nights, our Friday, Saturday night, and I'm there working. And, and so there are signs there. And so um, I do um, enforce it. I kindly remind if you're not in the same party, you have, you know, six, six feet apart. And so for me, my restaurant, I, I am still enforcing it, that, that I am supposed to do that. I am doing that. And then our staff is also doing that. Okay. But this whole thing of asking people whether they've been vaccinated and if they can show their card, you don't feel comfortable doing that for your customers? Honestly, I, I don't. I, I don't. You know, we have a, loyal, a lot of loyal customers. And so, and some of them chose not to be vaccinated and some of them choose to be vaccinated and our customers that choose not to be vaccinated, they'll, they'll come at a like a less busy time. So um, between you know an earlier when we open at eleven or before five o'clock. So when it's not so busy, um, they'll they'll come at that time. But as far as with asking, uh, to be I don't feel feel comfortable. I, I did hear some restaurants that they did try to do that for a few hours and it just didn't work out, and so they they stopped uh, doing that. And 
to be honest, I don't know how you would be able to, you know, just in, in enforcing that. I think it would be really tough. And so we're not at that point where we're doing that. I, I To be honest with you, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Yeah, I mean, it almost seems like you have to have a, maybe a, a person designated just to do the checks, right? An extra person to hire, an extra body. Right, and, and an extra body to hire. And, and also, you know, you know, in the beginning, there were some, I mean, there's a lot of frustration, I mean, just around, um, you know, various different things. And so um, just in the beginning, whenever there was the max mandate, and so whenever some of the employees were not, not at my restaurant, mm-hmm. but at other establishments, what I've heard, enforcing the mask mandate, there were some people that were being aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as with that. And so at this point, I'm not there and, and right. um, I don't feel comfortable asking. And so that's, that's kind of where we're at right now. Sarah Wynn is the owner of the Pizza Press in Pearl City. She's also the incoming head of the Hawaii Restaurant Association. She sat down with us recently to talk about the difficulty of asking patrons to show proof of vaccinations and the other challenges facing the indus- uh, restaurant industry right now. are in the middle of National Culinary Arts Month, a time when we applaud chefs who bring unique cuisine from their kitchens to our tables. One local talent that's been recognized worldwide is Maui chef Sheldon Simeon. You may have tried one of his eateries, Star Noodle in Lahaina, a lineage restaurant in Wailea, and the newest, Tin Roof in Kahului. The conversations Lillian Sang sat down with the popular chef and television personality. He has a new cookbook on the shelves. I'm a father. That's the best I can be. And then a faithful husband living here in Wailuku, Maui. But uh, born and raised in Hilo to a huge family. My mom had 11 siblings and my dad had had eight. So lots of cousins and family gatherings all around. And uh, forever surrounded by food. We celebrated food and we loved it. We come from a family of amazing cooks. And, you know, I looked up to my parents as uh, my inspirations to my cooking but uh yeah our family was the one that always cooked for all these large gatherings until this day my dad just had someone ask him to make a big old batch of his pork and peas so that still happens to this day that's where the family to cook for these large parties yeah i saw a video of you i think it was in your dad's house with all these huge walks <laughs> yeah yeah, that you know, that's one of the reasons why I call my restaurant Tin Roof. Uh, a lot of my memories were cooking in the garage uh, with my my father and my uncles, and uh, just hearing the rain on the tin roof. Yeah, uh, one of my favorite memories. It probably had to be my graduation party from Hilo High School. Shout out to all all my classmates. There's some successful ones from. Hilo High class of 2000, so proud Viking here. Uh, but we cooked for days. We we're cooking for so many days and just like leading up to it. And you start off the week by gathering things. So you go and, uh, you know, you go pick French roots, you go pick pohole, and then you go gather you know, fish from people and, and you start marinating meats and cutting meats. And it's just an excuse for the family to come together and and have a good time leading up to the party, the actual party. I had all my aunts and uncles 
still there. I mean, a few of them had passed since then, but uh, it's an awesome memory that to to see that they were all still gathering all together, and we cooked for the whole week and uh, celebrated. Oh, I totally connect with you on that, and I agree with you. Food really brings you together, and so for our family, it was doing the dumplings, jiaozis, the gyozas. Yeah, yeah. So growing up, everybody had their job. Like for me, it was making the dough from scratch, the flour, the water, you know, and then we pass off <laughs> to mom. She had to roll, and you know, she had the knife, not the kids. Then she would roll the the dumpling skins, the wrappers. And my brother's manning the stove to cook orders of fried or boiled dumplings, and it, yeah, yeah. it was a family affair though. And everybody, like you said, it was an excuse for us to get together. And the aunties would come, grandpa, grandma would come, and we'd all just gather and eat and just enjoying what all our hands created. That was the highlight. Yeah, yeah, some of my fondest memories. That's why me and my brother became chefs. So all we did growing up, you know, we were the we were the garuts. We were the, the gophers. We had to go grab this, go go wash this, <laughs> do all of that, <laughs> cut this, peel this, me and my brother. So. But you had uh, the masters to follow, yeah? Yeah. yeah. No, I, 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 looking back at it, I'm just, like, very fortunate to have witnessed that. And, uh, you know, I, sent, I just sent a cookbook to one of my aunties. But my uncle passed away, but when I sent that off, I was like... He was one of the the main main guys that would be cooking, and just so many memories of uh, of cooking together. So. And the beauty of cooking, though, is it gets passed down to those who cook with you. So, like for you, back in the day, it was in the family garages, but then it led up to you also working in restaurants. Where was that path? Oh man, you know, in high school, I thought I was going to be an artist. I love it. I love all things about buildings, and I still stare at them too. So you know, I had advanced math. I had all of that stuff, and then senior itis came along my senior year. My brother going to culinary school. He's three years older than me. The fact that we've been cooking our whole life, he kind of breezed through it. I seen the way they breezed through culinary school. I was like, ah, I think I'm gonna go into culinary school instead. Um, yeah, and enrolled myself at uh, Leeward Community College uh, in Waipahu. And uh, once I got there, yeah, I enjoyed it all. I enjoyed maybe not the academic side, but the fact that uh, just cooking every day, just showing up, and I loved it. And, uh, yeah, I've been, been a uh, cook ever since. Your cookbook is very well put together. I really appreciated your storytelling as you, you know, you talk about the rich history of Hawaii. It's not just one thing. It's not like a whole, like, one word fits all. There are so many different facets to what makes up Hawaii, and you did a really great job of highlighting the different cultures, the different peoples, the food. Yeah, it's, it was uh, definitely a journey. Now I've, I understood that there was an amazing opportunity to really showcase uh, our culture here in Hawaii. A lot of what media has painted as uh, is just a small little sliver, and it's always silver-lined when a lot of Hawaii's history it is has a lot of rawness, and a lot of it is not exposed because it is in the homes. It is about family, and uh, yeah, I'm glad that I got to tell those stories and my uh, experiences, 
and uh, everyone seems to have received it well. Your experience on national TV shaped your cooking and what you share in the cookbook. For people following your career, it was a treat to hear you've been invited back to Top Chef Season 14, where you could showcase your cooking on a national platform. How did the opportunity to come back to Top Chef happen? Yeah, so um, a few seasons later after opening a restaurant with Chef Gordon and uh, Chef Mark Elman uh, called Migrant yeah, at the Hotel Marriott Wailea, the show called. It was uh, quite the phone call, which is pretty hilarious. It was actually right when we were about to open Tin Roof. Uh, I walked out the door. I, I looked on my phone on the ID caller and I recognized the number. It was the, the casting agency for Top Chef. I was like, the hell these guys are calling here for? So I stepped out and uh, yeah, I said yes before even like checking in with my, my wife and the rest of the team. Oh. It was a huge surprise to them. So, not only are you opening up a new restaurant at this point, you get the phone yep. call out of the blue, you take the call, step outside. It's like, oh, these guys from, what, four years ago. And <laughs> yeah. they, they pop the question, hey, we want you back, Sheldon. We're going to do another season. Are you game? And yeah. Yeah, and, I was, and they there. told me the date, and I would, that, that would make us open for less than two months. I think it was like six wow. or seven weeks after we opened, I would, I would have to leave for two months. <laughs> it was a huge <laughs> surprise to the team. Okay. The team was like, what? Are you, you, you're leaving? But, you know, we put our heads down. We worked our butts off for that, that uh, two months. And, uh, yeah, I got another stab at it at Top Shop. Mm-hmm. Okay, and this time another part of the country. Yeah, yeah, uh, opposite side. So we found myself in Charleston, South Carolina. And it was uh, my exploration into Southern cuisine, which forever changed my palate and the way I view food. It was so amazing. It was a lot of the flavors that I tasted there from, like, the classic Southern dishes resonated with me and. I just felt there was a huge parallel in seeing with, like, the food that my grandparents cooked. Uh, Ilocano food is very vegetable-forward. It's very seasonal. Yeah, a lot of the dishes that I ate down there, it resonated. Mm -hmm. And so after Charleston, what sort of flavors were brought back? Uh, shoot, the flavors of like really celebrating vegetables in a way and just like making vegetables shine and really, really celebrating the ingredient. The way that they talked about rice in Charleston, it was like, it was amazing. It was, they held it up at the utmost respect. And for something so simple, sometimes we just take it for granted. We just have rice, but to these people, you know, that's, that's everything. So I had an amazing journey there. And you got to claim fan favorite once again. Yeah, Hanoho on the fan favorites. I don't know. Again, I'm just trying to be myself, just trying to be represent my family well. And uh, try not to take myself so serious uh, this time. When the competition is serious like that, it's, uh, it can get cutthroat. I was stoked on the opportunity. I got to showcase Hawaii cuisine again. Mm-hmm. And I really 
really had a great time this second coming. You stayed true to your roots, true to who you were. There's a wonderful story in the cookbook about you on the set and how you <laughs> connected with the team behind the camera. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, the shoots are grueling. I think our shortest day was 18 hours. Uh, so you go through these moments where you're like long, long times of of waiting and then these uh, high stress moments uh, and then you become like really engaged with uh, one guy in, in particular and that's the sound guy uh, that's the first person that you see and last person you see <laughs> in the day so you know every day they'd mic you up you have your short little conversation with them and you, you become friends but uh, one day uh, I was making a little snack. I was making some spam musubi, and uh, I had some extra ones, so I decided to give it over to uh, one of the sound guys. And uh, it was super funny while we were getting grilled in front of the judges, and I peer over and see one of the sound guys eating a musubi. Uh, I was laughing at the moment. Nobody else had any clue why I was laughing, but uh, it was just super rad to see that. Oh, but it made you feel good. It goes back to you being a cook. You fed somebody your food. Yeah, yeah. That's it. If you can give, you give. That's my, my father always told me. And Spam Musubi is one of those user-friendly recipes in your new cookbook. Beautifully put together. It's hard to put down. There's just like each page. It's like, I want to know what's coming up. It's a page. Yeah. No, I had an amazing team. A shout out to co-author Garrett Snyder who was able to bring these stories to life and just like really really get to tell my stories properly and then shout out to to Kevin Miyazaki who this guy from Milwaukee but his family was uh from the Big Island so it was a journey for him so he really like dove into this project and just like captured everything and he did an amazing job. That's pretty cool. You both have the Big Island connection. And in this book, are there Easter eggs hidden that only the family would know? Are there photos that you were able to get in there that are special to you? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's a couple of photos. Like one is with my uncle Danny, who was, uh, who was a chef at Ken's House of Pancakes for 40 years, 40-plus 40 years. He's uh, approaching, oh, he's 80-something he's years old, and he's still cooking. At Ken's House of Pancakes, it's still in there. Um, yeah, me in the fern bush. Yeah, just that photo right before that. Uh, I had two baby pigs run practically between my legs, and we were kind of scared that mom was around. Uh, so we took that picture and got out of the bush as fast as we could because we were unarmed. <laughs> <laughs> that was Chef Sheldon Simeon talking with Arnelian Song. His new cookbook. Cook Real Hawaii is now available in bookstores.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Rabbi Paul Citron, author of I Am My Prayer. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about enlivening prayer that wakes us up and opens our consciousness. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're testing your nutritional knowledge of local produce. The history of the pineapple in Hawaii is a long one. Dole Plantation set up shop on Oahu in the 1920s. And by the 1930s, our islands were the epicenter of the industry. But in recent years, the bulk of production has largely moved outside of the U.S. Maui Land and Pineapple closed its doors in 2009, but some of their executives formed a new company in 2010 and continued to grow the crop on the slopes of Haleakala, marketing their fruit as Maui Gold. With the area's warm, sunny days and cool nights, along with its fresh water and rich volcanic soil, their fruit is extra sweet and, more importantly, less acidic than the average pineapple. But what truly makes it unique is that it contains a higher concentration of an important, nu- important nutrient, three times the daily USDA requirement, according to the company. So if you love eating Maui Gold, keep right on eating them. In addition to the sweet flavor, you're also getting an increased dose of vitamin C, which is the answer to our backyard quiz. We had lots of calls. Some people guessed bromelain. A few guessed potassium. But Dr. Jackie Malley, you got it right, vitamin C. That's today's quiz. If you have one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Early on in the pandemic, one of the public schools we highlighted for its innovation and can-do approach was a Molokai charter school. HBR reporter Casey Harlow revisits the school. Good morning, Casey. Morning, Catherine. So tell us, how are they doing? They're doing very well. They found that the initial test scores that they completed this past year, uh, they revamped their literacy curriculum and they have about a 10 percent point bump in child literacy and this came on the heels of the pandemic happening back in 2017 uh, they started this overhaul and right in the most critical area the most critical part of their overhaul was the pandemic and so there was a bit of a delay about a year but they decided to go back to in-person learning in the last school year and that is what made the difference i would say for this school revamping and boosting their student literacy. Yeah, I mean, they really had an approach of, you know, hey, what's possible? What can we try? Yeah, exactly. And the school, like all schools, had issues with remote learning, with the technology, with the internet access, and even with support at home. It's just everybody's busy, everybody's a little bit stressed, and, you know, making sure that kids are actually in front of the camera or in front of their uh, lesson and learning. But they found that they couldn't sustain something like that. And I spoke with Principal Lydia Trinidad, and she said that they had an approach 
going for uh, three options, and they left it to the parents and they left it to the teachers on whether they wanted to come back to in-person learning. And they had three options, full day, a half day, and remote. And this is Principal Trinidad uh, explaining why they decided to go with this. Molokai was very unique in that we managed to keep our numbers low. People were concerned, but it was also low that it's like, why worry in some respect? You know, we had months at a time where we had no cases. By giving parents the choice of full day, half day, or virtual, they got to control to what degree they were comfortable exposing their children to the public. And I think that was key. We made ourselves available for the choice, and it was intentional. Again, working with the staff, working with the parents, and looking at just what the community was going through. And... She estimates about 90% of students and teachers came back. There were still some that weren't comfortable with going back to in-person learning, so they were available for remote as well. And I think another key thing is that they asked teachers to not pull double duty, you know, have teach in-person and also teach a remote. If teachers uh, wanted to continue doing remote, they would stick with remote. But the ones who wanted to come back to in-person, they just had them focus on in-person learning. So they had they had buy-in from yeah, the staff. Exactly. Uh, and I think that was also key. They decided to talk to the staff, talk to families, and kind of keep everything transparent with what everybody was feeling, everybody was uh, thinking about, and what their concerns were, and then addressing those concerns. But like she said, Molokai was very unique. Case counts were relatively low compared to the rest of the state, and it maintained that way throughout the pandemic. So who else did you talk to? I also talked to the DOE to, just to confirm that they did see improvements and how everything was being handled. And they said that they can't confirm the test scores just yet because they're still uh, compiling that. But uh, from the initial test results that they have seen uh, that was reported by uh, Principal Trinidad. There, It seems like there is a bump, but they did not confirm whether or not they can verify that. But still, that's great. I mean, they were able to, to raise the test score, so that's a, it's a nice bright spot on the horizon. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, upcoming school year is coming up, and the administrators, Principal Trinidad, says that they're going to adopt certain things that you know, seem to have worked during the pandemic, you know, keeping an open communication with parents, uh, keeping an open communication with their teachers, and also the things that were included within this overhaul effort of not only bumping test scores and having a more interactive and engaged curriculum for their students, but also the professional side of things. They gave opportunities for teachers to take time to then plan their courses and also to develop better as teachers. And so, This is Principal Trinidad uh, speaking about what's some of the things that they're going to maintain for the upcoming school year that they thought was very beneficial during the pandemic. I think we had more parent involvement during the pandemic than ever because we also increased our ways of interacting with parents by doing Zoom. We had more participation with parents for IEP meetings and individual meetings and parent conferences. So I think that will definitely continue. Parents are busy. Sometimes they don't have transportation, but most parents have a phone that they can do virtual meetings. 
And another thing that they're going to do is smaller class sizes. They found that was very beneficial. And also Trinidad and school administrators hope to restart field trips as well. They feel that the field trips were a very key part to learning and the parents really enjoyed that their kids are learning about Moloka'i history, Hawaiian history, and things that are around them and having them involved. Yeah, and uh, the start of the new school year just around the corner. I think uh, the teachers will be back in the classroom preparing, and then I think August 3rd is when most go back. Right. Uh, for Kualapu'u Charter, uh, it's August 2nd, and they're planning on having a parent-teacher conference or some sort of conference with the parents before school starts so everybody understands how the next school year is going to be involved and hear their concerns and right. whatnot. Get on the same page. Yeah, exactly. Right. Thanks so much, Casey. Thank you. We have been chatting with HBR's Casey Harlow. Find his stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. And we're out of time. Tomorrow we hear from the state health department's food safety branch about the challenges with enforcement in food establishments across the state. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow with more of the conversation.